Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I'm going to begin a three-week series this morning called Reconnect. Reconnect. We're here in 2021. Brace yourself for what I'm about to say. This is the year we prayed for all last year. Too soon? Too much, right? I mean, but like, it's not funny yet, so don't tell the joke yet. It's never going to be funny when I tell it. So I might as well just go ahead and get it out there. I don't know what some of you prayed all last year, but we need to talk because we got to make some improvements, right? <clears throat> okay. You know, um, I'm going to deal with it, and I hope uh, in a redemptive manner and an encouraging manner, but uh, very likely there will be some uh, pain inflicted in the midst of the next few weeks, but I have to deal with it. Recently, I spent some time in the Colorado backcountry. That sounds a lot worse than it really was. I climbed a couple of 14ers in my car. <clears throat> you know, just, you need to get that last phrase so you understand where I've been. But I kept running into this sign called closed for revegetation. Closed for revegetation. And, and as I began, the first time I saw it, I, I'm accustomed to this sign. I've seen them before, didn't think much about it, but I saw it and I thought, okay, I, I get that. I'm not going to go into that area because they are trying to regrow what should be natural there and what has disappeared because of abuse and overuse and all those kinds of things. But the more I began to see it, the more I began to think, what a powerful image to describe this last year. Like there was a sense of closeness, like you couldn't do everything normal life had entailed for you you know you couldn't just make your plans and go do them you had to consider whether those plans were available and and I've wondered in the closed for revegetation season if you will if I can use the analogy if much revegetation has grown back you know that which is supposed to be there which is good and healthy and, and that kind of thing but too often I fear we've ignored the opportunity by continued busyness, by carrying on as if we just could. I've also mentioned a couple of times this recent trend of the deconstruction of faith. And these aren't two separate analogies. I think really and truly what, what we've seen in this season, these come together very well. What's happened in this, I don't know if you've tracked any of it, and I'm, I'm not talking about the population in general. I'm, I'm thinking more specifically of some famous Christian people or their children or that kind of thing who have made such public declarations of the deconstruction of their faith. People who were once at a very high level of platform among Christianity. And now they're announcing their deconstruction of their faith. And I, I read an article recently that ad addresses the trend in summation. And of course, if you listen to their explanation, you know, the church has done all of these ills and all of these wrongs and these Christian people and, and blah, 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 so forth and so on. And here's what the article says in summation towards the end. 
ex-evangelicals, which is the title used uh, for so many of these in the midst of deconstruction. Ex-evangelicals can blame it on the youth groups they frequented, their parents, and everyone else they desire to. But the onus is on them at the end of the day. Bullseye, hit, right? I mean, that, that's it. Like there's coming a day when every person will stand before God to give an account for their life. And there's two things that aren't going to work. First of all, you're not going to be able to look at God and go, you know, God, I did a lot of good things. Let's don't talk about the rest. Like there's not going to be any personal accomplishment, achievement, or merit by which you can bend the will of God to get you in. And there's not going to be any other excuse outside of yourself by which you can say, but it wasn't my fault. I've become convinced that the likelihood to deconstruct is directly proportionate to the time spent on social media. I'm telling you, the greatest day of my life was about a month ago when I just shut Twitter off. It is a raging dumpster fire, but I don't have to tell you that. I turned it on this weekend for the first time in weeks and immediately first tweet, I thought, oh my gosh, why did I stick my nose back into this? I'm out. This pattern of deconstruction, now, now, now granted, I, I want to say this, I'm, I'm not trying to be uncompassionate here or uh, in any way harsh because I'll come back to that in a moment. I recently had a lifelong friend declare that he was done with disorganized religion. He would have called it deconstruction, but he's not on any kind of a platform, so there wasn't any need to impress people on social media. Here's what he said in his explanation. He still believed in God. He just didn't see any need for other Christians in the local church. But here's the interesting part of his decision. Listen to this. He made a decision about God and about the church. But the interesting part of his decision, he asked no honest questions of God or the church. He made no genuine effort in searching for God and seeking for God and asking of God or even seeking counsel from his word. As a matter of fact, he's not even been active in church for years. And that's the scientific process by which he was able to reach the conclusion that the church is worthless. Christians are of no value for his life. That's interesting. That makes me a brain surgeon. Who needs it this week? Right? I got nothing to do with it. Never even read an article on it. But according to this process, I'm ready. Here's what he did. He spent more time, really over the last decade, more money and more energy in travel, in recreation and adventure vacation and all at the expense of active participation of his faith. I mean, after all, he's got a job. When else is he going to travel? During the week? It makes me wonder how many of these deconstruction decisions are based on pseudo, pseudo constructs created in a vacuum 
And, and, and decisions made by the ranting and raging of social media or a podcast-informed decision rather than some true assessment of what's taking place in the heart. Because once you get on that path, the obvious conclusion has already been prescribed for you. That's where it will lead. Let me ask you this. Have you considered how this last season has reshaped or conditioned you? What, what it's, impact it's had on you and your family, your children, your marriage? Have you stopped long enough to ask, are we better than we were a month ago, six months ago, a year ago? Are, are we even at the same place? Listen, I, I want you to understand, I, I make jokes about things sometimes, but it's not because I'm making light of them. That is one of my principal coping methods. I can laugh about it as I deal with it and try to process it or I can find myself in the corner in the fetal position sucking my thumb. I've seen some of you there. What are we going to do? I mean, I'm broken over these stories because here's the reality. I'm not broken over all the headliners that are happening. Yes, in a sense that breaks my heart, but I typically don't know these people personally. I just read about them. But here's what I know. There's a vast majority. I would guess greater than 60% of the people who will sit in this building today who are walking through the same questions of deconstruction. They may not call it that, but they're asking the questions of the faith of doubts. Is it worth it? I mean, why hadn't God stopped all of this already? Why hadn't he dealt with it? If it's this bad, why, why isn't there an answer to it yet? What in the world is going on? You're already beginning to prescribe to the pathway of deconstruction by the questions of doubt and disbelief that you're entertaining and allowing to linger in your mind that are permeating into your heart. And beginning now to form a foundation out of which you are answering questions for yourself. Ah, does it really matter? Well, these are the kinds of questions I plan to deal with over the next three weeks in this series called Reconnect. To look at three essential points for Christians to reconnect. And hopefully to invite those of you who are not believers in Jesus Christ to come to faith in him. Friends, deconstruction is not new. It's the same old cesspool that's had some Febreze squirted across the top of it. But what lies underneath is still rank and rotten. Today, we're going to look at the oldest psalm as it declares our need to reconnect with God. And the great blessing that it brings to life. And here's what I'm praying by the power of God's spirit you walk away with today. God calls us to number all our days by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To walk in the blessing of his wisdom. God is calling us to number all of our days by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To walk in the blessing of of his wisdom. Quite frankly, I hope I meet some of you wherever you find yourself on the path of deconstructing your own faith and I can persuade you to turn around and just look back. I'm not going to even ask you to take steps today. Just look at what you're walking away from and consider with sober-mindedness 
where you're headed. Let's go to Psalm chapter 90. I'm going to read the first 11 verses before we continue. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I want to stop right there in the midst of the tension because I want us to dwell in the tension of the reality of this passage for a few moments. Moses begins with this phenomenal confession of the Lord's all-encompassing, steadfast love and provision. Go back and reread verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And who better to say this than the man who God raised up to lead the children of Israel out of the Egyptian slavery and into the wilderness. And for all of those 40 years, Moses would know God was the dwelling place of his children, that he was the one who was faithful to provide. He was the one who was faithful to speak in all of those years. Slavery in Egypt was not the will of God for his people, but he would use use it in just such a way. Wilderness wandering was not the will of God for his people ultimately, but he would use that. And in all of this, even moving into the promised land after Moses' life, these verses would be as true in those days as they were in the day that they were penned by Moses himself. God is our dwelling place. Not slavery in Egypt, not wandering in the wilderness, not even the glory of the honey and milk that flowed in the promised land. God himself is our dwelling place. Then he begins with creation. And he, he begins to billow up and build this exaltation of staggering greatness and the infiniteness of God. But that glorious exaltation immediately falls from staggering to, to sobering as this, this warm rush pours down over the reader as God is the one who returns man to dust by his command. Theologian J.I. Packer says of this verse that the eternal existence of God is here mentioned to set forth by contrast the brevity of human life. What do we see? We see this. Time holds no constraint on God, neither in the longevity of his being nor in the waning of his glory. 
From generation to generation, you have been our dwelling place. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And your glory is no dimmer today than it was in the beginning of eternity. Don't think about that for very long. Your being is as it has always and forevermore shall be. And then there's man who against that backdrop is seen as mortal and temporal, constrained to return to dust and to succumb to time. We don't even have to come to the end of our life to know the truth of this. This was my annual physical week. That week of the year that reminds me I'm already fading, right? Now, I need to apologize because the first service I said, it's the worst week of the year, not because of the doctor. Doesn't have anything to do with it. Doesn't matter of fact, I'm thankful for the physicians in my life who have helped me improve the physical quality of my life. But because of this right up here, it becomes the worst week of the year. I have to be reminded of what I don't like to remember about me. There are things about me that are beyond my control. And one of those is the limits of my own control over my own life. And I'm reminded, I need to be more reminded and mindful of that. That's what Moses is saying to all of us here. You see, the point is to show the reality of what is by contrasting people against the one who is immortal and immeasurable. Those who are barely anything at all that barely even register on the meter are compared against the one who looks at the meter to read it because he can't be measured This is what Moses is saying to us. There is no comparison between us and God. We, We don't even stand beside him or behind him, let alone before him. He's highlighting not only the shortness of our life, but the futility of it because of sin, friends. It tells us man's days are brought to an end by God's wrath. You see, we weren't created for death. That's what that means. But we are subject to it because of our sin. And no one faces death without dismay. You know why? This is my own conviction, but I think it's pretty accurate. Because it is beyond our comprehension. It is beyond our control. When God created us and put us in the garden... Before sin entered the picture, there was no gray matter wiring to comprehend death. Why? Because death was not a reality in Genesis 2. So when we face death today, there's a reason it overwhelms us. There's a reason it knocks us back. There's a reason we can't process it. Because when we are confronted with it, it is beyond us. The length of our days are short. 
and their span but toil and trouble. All our days pass away. Not simply the existence of them, friends, but listen, the the fullness of them passes away. We, We hear this before the passing even transpires. That's why we have an argument today about who's the goat of the NBA. Like nobody even remembers the true goat. MJ himself, they're all talking about this other dude. He ain't no goat. And that right there ages me. Right? I mean, right there. Oh, he's going to go there. Right? I mean, we're talking about not simply the existence of them, but the fullness of our days passing away just with the simple arguments of life that we entertain. And so we ask, how are we to process such hard words with heavy reality? Like, what do we do with this? If we stop at verse 11, man, it does not look good. It doesn't sound good. We just need to do something. How do we process this? Well, first and foremost, let me say this. Christians recognize that because our life is now hidden with God in Christ, these words are no longer ultimately true of our life. They were true of us without Christ. They are no longer true of us because of Christ. And that's where we're going today. I want you to understand that. What is true of our life in Christ removes sin's full effect from our life that was true without Christ. You see, Christians are destined for God's rest. And there's much for us to learn here when we apply the reality of these words to our life by looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Commentator Derek Kidner says it puts our world into its context. What's our context? God. And our time span, it places it into its huge setting of eternity. And this is humbling for human pride, the very point of the verse, but not heartening with regards to God's interventions and their timings. You see, Moses' prayer here puts our life into God and humbles our heart before him because he is inviting us to this regular daily practice of accounting our days in order to gain a heart of wisdom. Here's what Moses says. He does not throw his hands up and go, Oh, well, oh, well, what are we going to do? No, rather look at verse 12. What does he say? He looks to God and he says to God, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Do not look at the reality of this sin-stained world and lose hope in God, but rather look to God, the only one who brings hope to the reality of all that is. You see, a heart of godly wisdom is gained as we account for our lives daily. We should number our days because God has numbered our days. And in the numbering of our days, we can measure our days because God already knows the measure of our life. That's why we number our days. But between the ultimate hope of victory from God's wrath as sin's death blow, that's what we see in verse 11. Who's gonna save us? Oh, wretched man that I am, the apostle Paul says. I can't stop doing what I don't wanna do and I can't start doing what I know I've gotta be doing. What am I gonna do? And the reality of life's daily struggle where we cry to God, verse 13, Lord, how long return, have pity on us. What do we do in the midst of this tension? 
tension and it's in the pressure where God meets us by the gospel to shape our lives into the formation of his eternal wisdom who is Christ. Christ for us, Christ in us. Christ, the one to whom we are to become. Like, let me ask you some application questions. In the hard and the heavy days, when nothing goes right and all seems to be against you, how do you respond? When you find yourself in the tension between verses 11 and 13, things seem hopeless. Does God even care and see? Well, what is your first response? Are you prone to blame and complain and start talking about the wrongs and the ills of everyone else? And, well, God, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't feel this way. And if this person hadn't said that or done this or, or whatever the case may be, you know, they're just all hypocrites. Whatever the explanation may be, are you prone to blame and complain? Or do you turn to the Lord and seek him and go, Lord, here's the two realities that are pulling me apart. Bring them to the center of my life so I can see where you are at work. And what about the good days? Have you seen how little of this I've been doing lately, God, and how much of this I've been succeeding at? What do you do then? Do you rejoice in the Lord or do you barely remember him at all because you just haven't felt your need for him very much lately? I mean, you've been doing such a great job. I mean, who can't see that, right? Right? These are the considerations that must be before us in the numbering of our days, friends. Our numbering must include our whole being, our words and our deeds, our actions and our attitudes, our adorations, our inclinations, not only our actions, but our motivations. And in the midst of our weekly rigor, in the midst of our weekly rest, is our heart set on Christ at all times? That's the question. In the grind of every day, is your heart set on Christ? Are you just trying to get through it? In the moments of rest, is your heart set on Christ? Are you just trying to recover enough to get up and get to the next one? You know, it's interesting. We live in a day and time when a vast number of people monitor their life and their body right here. It tells us everything. I, oh, did I get a good night's sleep last night, Siri? Oh, you got a great night's sleep. You spent X number of minutes in the zone. Like the sweet spot. Can you feel it? I feel it every morning when the alarm goes off. I want to feel it some more. I mean, we, we measure every metric of bodily function, right? Like, like, and I have one of these. So I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm making fun of myself. And y'all too. <clears throat> but the longer that I can maintain that heart rate, man, I mean, there are moments when I start to work out like, oh, I gotta be like setting a new high. It's like 84. Oh, no. I gotta get to 120 to even be doing any good. And then I spend that elongated time in the zone, man. I'm like, I'm feeling it today. I'm feeling it. I hope the scales are feeling it in the morning. It's funny, the scales never measure it the way I feel it. But we know how it is. The more your heart rate is in the zone, the more bad you burn, the more good you earn. Right? I mean, that's just the way it is. That's the way it is. Ice cream no more! 
maybe a little more steak. Well, what if we gave the same kind of intentionality to our heart's spiritual well-being? You ever think about that? What if your watch went off every morning? Have you spent time with the Lord, the one who created you, the one who gave you two feet to hit the floor this morning and just thanked him for the goodness and the grace of this day? Gotcha, thanks. What if, uh, what if every time we said something, that watch monitored, you know, our heart? I don't think you really meant what you just said. You think it's going to help you. Your boss is going to be impressed with you if you say that the next time. You, 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 you didn't really intend to ask that question. You had more in mind something to say. It'd be like that movie Liar Liar with Jim Carrey. It came out years ago. Like your watch would be buzzing off of your wrist. Hello, that's not what you meant. That's not what you thought. That's not where your heart is. What if you had a monitor like that? What would it be telling you? I want to give you a couple of images today to to think about this numbering of our days by the gospel to get godly wisdom. And the, the first image I want to provide for you is how it is we number our days you know, we, we tend to number our days pretty simply, don't we? I mean, it's a very simple graph here. It didn't take a graphic artist to create it. Uh, so, so we look at this and man, we all want to stay on this side over here, right? Let's move in this direction. Say, move to the right, to the right, to the right, right? That's the way we want to go. And the better the day, the higher the number, right? I mean, when things felt good, when we succeeded, when we did well, we get a plus. And the better the good felt, the better we accomplished it, the bigger the number that gets attached to the plush. Push it, uh, push it, push it, push it further in that direction. But then there's the other direction, Some of you are all too familiar with it. If we do wrong, if we fail, if we didn't feel good about it, if we sense some kind of pain or guilt or negative emotion, then it goes the other way to become a minus. And the worse it was, the bigger the minus. Fact of the matter is, far too many of us have spent far too much time somewhere beyond that negative five, and we know it. All too familiar with it. You see, the problem with this system is twofold. Here's the problem with this system. Minuses occur too often, as we're all fully aware of in our own heart. And the pluses just don't last long enough, right? They don't satisfy. Like, well, I thought I just did. It's gone. At best, our negative numbers begin to never leave us and, and, and begin to weigh upon us so that they begin to crush us. And, and the positive numbers that are so fleeting, even when they do stay, they just bloat us. But numbering our days to gain a heart of wisdom, friends, is not about our performance. It's about our faith. Listen to me, there's a very slight difference here It's about our faith that accounts for our life by looking to the cross and remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to number our days by the gospel for a heart of wisdom. Now, if you're using the preaching note sheet today, you're going to have to fill this in, and that's intentionally. You're going to have to just draw a little cross between the two scales here. And there's a reason for that. Because the scale 
doesn't provide the final tally. The cross does. And when we number our days in light of the gospel, Jesus is the final score. And that's the only number that makes us wise. You see, the point is this. You will succeed. You will have ways in which you blow this side of the chart up. You might multiply it by 10, by 100, by 1,000, by a million, or to the nth degree. But let me tell you this. As far as that side of the scale goes, it will never be more glorious than the cross that sits in the middle. And the same is true on the other side, friends. You may fail more miserably than you yourself even imagined you could. But however far that you pursue the scale in that direction, the light of the hope of the glory of Jesus Christ in saving and redeeming you will not dim. You hear me? It's as bright as bright can be. And the point of the numbering of our days to gain a heart of wisdom is that in all of our failures and in all of our successes, we turn and we look to the cross for the glory of God to be made manifest in this life. You see, the measure of a Christian's life is not because of our failures or because of our successes, but because of the one who bought and paid to make us a new creation. We do not live for our own glory We do not have to live in the muck and mire of our own failures. We live in the reality of Jesus Christ. 35 years, one month, two weeks, and six and a half hours ago, the Holy Spirit regenerated my heart for saving faith. And then after that, or excuse me, that came after 16 years, eight months, three days, and 20 hours of testing and rebellion. And I tell you today, I'm not proud of it, but I've not always agreed or liked God's ways. I can't even say I've always followed his word. I, I, I have not always been faithful to him in all of this time, neither before nor after my new birth in Christ. But in every year, in every month, even those that started with 2020 and 2021. Every day, every hour, every minute, every second, every moment. No matter how the time's been measured, this one thing I can say. There's not been one instant when God was not faithful. Deconstruct that. You crack it open to the smallest element and here's what you will find. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And in every generation, he's our dwelling place. You see, some of you have so petrified your rationale For why God is no longer worthy of your time, of your energy, of your affections or your adorations. But I'm telling you that is a shell with a hollow center. He is worthy of every part of you. And if you give it all to him. 
he will not disappoint in his return on your life. The delight or the difficulties of your days are no mistake that are unknown to God. But they are the very means by which he's saving and making you into the likeness of the one who is eternal wisdom, Jesus Christ. Very quickly, I'm going to offer four blessings that compel us to number our days by the gospel. They're found in verses 14 to 17. Blessing number one, when we walk in godly wisdom, the steadfast love of God satisfies you with joy for all your days. Satisfies you with joy. Look at what Moses writes. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God reminds us of this. Between verses 11 and 13, in the practice of verse 12, you are my child. Have you heard him tell you that lately, Christian? Have you heard him speak his love over you? His saving grace to you? You see, God satisfies the deepest longings of our heart, not with trinkets, but with steadfast love. Here's the mistake that you're going to make if you go by the first image of measurement. It's this. We try to number our days to give them value. Well, that's a good day. Was it a three or a five? Was it a 3.862978? Was it, a, you know, I mean, we, we're trying to assign value. We want to we wanna capture everything. But instead, numbering our days by the gospel means we don't assign value. We glean value. Lord, I'm at the end of my rope and I don't know what to do and it looks like the vapor of my life is about to whisk away. How long will you ignore this? I've got a number this day. I can't give it a value. I have no idea where to begin, but I can glean what you have for me. And the promises are not light, nor will they disappear. I know that I know that Jesus Christ will bring to me and for me, all that he wants in this life. You see, when we glean value, worth, power, and glory in light of God's wisdom, we receive the wisdom of his eternal truth. When we just try to give value to our days, we end up elevating and bloating self. That's why it doesn't last. Because we don't last. Christian, we number our days so that only God's love in Jesus defines us in every way. Be careful. Be careful how much you sit on the glorious throne of your successes without pointing all the praise and honor and glory to Christ. You know you're growing in godly wisdom when the steadfast love of God satisfies you in the depth of your being no matter how far you go on either end of the scale. The second blessing is when we walk in godly wisdom, the joy of Jesus Christ outlasts the afflictions upon us. Look at verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. If I've learned anything in the last year, friends, it's the anchoring power of God's joy and the strength that it genuinely 
brings. It's not like it's the first time I've learned this lesson, but it is the greatest season of this lesson for me. In this season, I've learned how it is that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength as it serves as our anchors. You see, the waves of sorrow and affliction will surely rise and fall in the days and the times of this world. And it becomes so turbulent on top. But I have come to realize that it's not about what you can surf on on top that measures the joy of God, but it is that current underneath that flows steady and true and runs deep and strong. That's the joy that the Lord brings to us. Regardless of what's taking place on the surface, the joy of the Lord is there. And that joy has a staying power to it, knowing that however turbulent it may get on the surface, that affliction will pass, but the joy will not wane. You see, it doesn't mean that we're unaffected by affliction. Good grief. If I could just share some of the stories with you, which I'm not about to, it would be too traumatic. And I don't say that with any jest. I've lost six friends in the last 18 months. Three of them came in the first four months of the pandemic, all of which chose to end their own life two of which were pastors. That doesn't even include the death of my father. That's a red flag warning. Don't get in the water today because the waves are going to take you out. But the current carries us. I have not been unaffected by the affliction Neither have I been overrun or overwhelmed by it because there's been an anchor that's held me. It's the joy of the Lord. It's the joy of the Lord. That's just my own story. It doesn't even get into my other things that I could share with you from the ministry itself. You see, when the joy of the Lord is your strength, afflictions don't tear you apart because while they may last for a time, the morning will come and He will bring His joy. He will bring us joy. You know you're growing in godly wisdom when the joy of the Lord anchors you to outlast your afflictions. The third blessing is when we walk in godly wisdom, God reveals his power through your labors. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. You see, our broken means of numbering often causes us to look away from God. Or if we look at God at all, we look on him with suspicion. And when we look at all that's going on, we begin to think, I don't think I can do anything in this situation. Instead, as we ought to look on and go, well, now it really all does depend on God. We must be at a point where he really wants to work. You see, we live faith deplete when we measure our days by what they offer to us instead of what Christ will bring to us through them. We live faith deplete when we measure our days by asking, what did this offer for me? Instead of looking at them and asking, God, what do you want to bring to me through this that makes me more like you? 
The Bible teaches that when Christians look at difficulty before us, we are to see that the one who is with us is greater than those that are against us or that which is against us. And we know that Romans 8 teaches in verse 28 that, uh, that, that God works all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That's not the one promise that God breaks. And you know what? We also know this, that when Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Are you ready? Hold on to this one. He actually meant it. There is a salve for the heart's trouble. He is it. Why? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You see, the problem is some of you walked away from home and you haven't looked back. Some of you are real close to finding yourself feeding the pigs because you're at the end of everything that you've got. What I want to recall for you is this. The Father is waiting. He's watching and looking for you. Come home. Our means of numbering can be so broken. You know, leadership principle teaches us that we tend to overestimate what can be accomplished in one year and underestimate what can be accomplished in five. You've maybe heard that. It's something of that nature. Let me share with you a spiritual leadership principle. We always underestimate what God can do in an instant. That's what Ephesians 3 tells us. For the one who is able to do far, far more than you've conceived, than you've imagined, than you've even dared to think. And he can do it in an instant. What if we stop praying as much for God to change or fix our situation and pray, God, just show up with your power in the midst of every moment. And today, I'm going to number this moment in such a way to ask, God, what are you bringing to my life through it that your will might be done? We know we're growing in godly wisdom when all our labors demonstrate the power of God no matter the situation. Number four, we walk in godly wisdom when God's favor establishes the work of our hands beyond the days of our lives. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I want you to think of Joseph here whose life was defined by steadfast love and the favor of God. And from the instant, from the very beginning of our introduction to Joseph, he had every piece of the puzzle to complete the deconstruction except for the middle piece, the piece that really stands out. But you know, he could have put the whole puzzle together and went, close enough, I'm out of here. But he never did. He never did. He never let go of the promise of God. He never forgot nor forsook the love of God in his life. And he continued to serve God. Just one man, the only thing I know how to do, but I'll tell you what I know how to do and I'll let God use it. And he was the one man whom the whole world sought out to be saved in the famine. He lived his life to do 
well what he knew how to do and he offered it to God so God could use his labors to save the whole world. Now, you may not think much of what you are or what you can do for the Lord, but it's not really your labors alone that matter. Here's what matters, as Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We know we're growing in godly wisdom when God establishes the labor of our hands to outlast the days of our life. Christian, God is calling us to number all our days by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To walk in the blessing of His wisdom. And I'm calling to us today, each one of you, wherever you find yourself today, to look to the cross. And in whatever ways the Spirit of God impresses upon your heart, and the Lord is speaking to you to reconnect to Him as your dwelling place. And begin to walk in the blessing of His eternal wisdom.